Father in heaven, we come to you today in the midst of a season within our own nation where we are wrestling with the horrendous evil that can happen so quickly. And today we're grateful that we have a sure word in your scriptures to help us to see all of life, including terrible events that happened in Aurora, Colorado. We can see them through a biblical lens. And we want to pray over that city today of the pastors and churches today who will proclaim your word in the midst of so many questions and so much pain. We pray for comfort and we pray for an awakening of the soul that people would understand that life is short and that sin and evil are real, but there's a solution in Christ. And so in humility, we we ask for help, Lord. We, We need insight into this psalm because there will come moments in all of our lives where we will ask some of the questions that this psalmist asks. And so I pray that you would help us today to understand this, help me to make it clear, and I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would bring encouragement and comfort and clarity to people who are in a challenging moment of their life, wondering, Lord, what in the world are you doing? So help us today as we wrestle with this text. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how many times that you, like me, have said something or prayed something like, Lord, would you show me your will? I mean, who wouldn't want to know the Lord's will? Who wouldn't want to be in the the center of his perfect will with all of the, the blessing and approval that comes along with being in God's will. But the problem is, is that there's a, a tension that exists with God's will, one that I'm sure that you are familiar with. Knowing and living within God's will can be very challenging at times. Challenging in the sense that we wonder, what is God doing? What is he saying? What, what does he want me to do here? Sometimes there are situations and circumstances that develop that are confusing, they're conflicting, and you might be left wondering, how does this fit with God's plan? I'm sure you've been there. I have many times in my lifetime. This this moment where we wonder, God, what are you doing? When it, when it seems as though life isn't very clear, it seems a bit dark. I, I've called before, if you've been around here very long at College Park, or if you're new, this is maybe a new phrase for you. I call this moment the dark side of God's will. And by this I mean that you know that you are in a providential orbit. You know that things are really beyond your control. And you know that there is the warm glow of God's promise-keeping grace. You, you know that God's promises are there. But for a moment, that promise-keeping grace is eclipsed by pain or difficulty or confusion. And being in this position doesn't change the certainty of the providential orbit that you're in. You know that God is in control, and you know that His promises are real. But the problem is, is the eclipse of this moment leaves you feeling dark and cold and lonely. Well, you know that one day the sun's going to shine again. You know one day you're going to come around the orbit, and this glowing, beautiful rays of God's 
Blessing will be there, but when you're in the dark side of God's will, those promises seem like they are a long way off. You may be in that kind of position today. I would suggest that you'll be in that position at some point in your life. And when you find yourself in the dark side of God's will, you need Psalm 89. You do. Psalm 89 is a psalm for those dark side moments. It is a psalm written to help us understand the dichotomy between God's promises and the reality of present pain. Interestingly, in our study of the Psalms, we've got one more next week, and then we jump into the subject of the mortification of sin. This is, this is the longest Psalm that we have studied. And it's really interesting to me that the psalmist spends so much time wrestling, 52 verses, wrestling with this idea of living in the dark side. And that should be, in one respect, very comforting to you to know that living on the dark side of God's will is really complicated. There are no easy answers. There aren't quick solutions. You don't just do these four things and it's over. In fact, if you're in a dark side moment today, I want to give you help and encouragement. But the reality is you're going to leave here and the situation in your life probably isn't going to change right away. So the psalmist wrestles for 52 verses with God's plan. I'm grateful that this kind of psalm is in the Bible. I love the fact that the psalmist says, Where is your steadfast love? I love that he says it that way. The steadfast love of the Lord is real, but where is it? That's what it means to be in the dark side of God's will. And that's why we love the Psalms, because like a good friend who's been through what we've been through, the psalmist almost says, look, been there, done that. Here's what you do. Here's how you think. It helps us to know that someone else has walked through this pain, and yet at the same time what the psalm also does is it gives us a path forward. It helps us to know how to think. It shows us how we should frame our understanding as it relates to our soul when it comes to these moments that are both confusing and dim. So I want to unpack this psalm. There's a number of verses, so we need to move fairly quickly and then at the end give you some lessons that I think both born in this text and in my own life to help guide you through moments when you're on the dark side of God's will. First, notice that he begins with intentional praise. The first four verses are all about intentionally praising God. Now, before we actually get into verse 1, though, your Bible, like mine, probably has a, um, an introduction, if you will, or um, an editorial-supplied title. Mine reads, A Maskill of Ethan the Ezraite. I did a little research on this man named Ethan and Apparently, he was a very wise man, lived during the time of David and Solomon. In fact, um, so wise was he that when um, the Bible is describing uh, Solomon's wisdom in 1 Kings chapter 4, it compares him to this man, Ethan. In fact, in a list of all the people who Solomon was wiser than, Ethan is in this list. So apparently he was a pretty well-known man in Israel's history who was known for proverbial and wise sayings. And as well, the fact that it's called the mass skill, that means a song that teaches. So what we have is a wise man who writes a song that's designed to be didactic in its purpose. So not just melodious and enjoyable and soothing, 
Ethan wrote this psalm for the intent purpose of teaching us something. Now, there's also a little bit of a problem in that if Ethan wrote the psalm, as you'll see later, there's content in here that doesn't really fit with the time of David and Solomon. So what do we do with that? Well, two things. Either verses 1 to 37 were written and they were a psalm and then 38 to 52 was added later, which I think is fairly likely and probably what happened. And Ethan um, authored the first 37 verses, and then someone else inspired by God authored the remaining verses. Sort of a famous song that you add a couple lyrics to, or another verse, because uh, the context of the song has changed. Or it may also have been that, so Ethan had um, a series of songs and had choirs that sang, and so sometimes choirs or Uh, Particular musical groups are named based upon their founder. And it may have been that this was a choral song attributed to Ethan, who was the um, original um, organizer of this type of psalm. Regardless, the point of verses 1 to 4 is that it is very intentional in its purposeful praise. The, The design here is to teach us how to think and live in the midst of challenging circumstances and to do that through a song. So he begins with a very specific and intentional upward focus. This praise, though, in the first four verses is not just about God in general. We'll see that in a moment. It centers on the theme, and this is really important for you to understand, the theme of the Davidic covenant, the promise that God had made to David. So when you hear verses 1 to 4, listen for the phrase steadfast love and listen for the theme of covenant that emerges. So just listen for that as we read it. Look at verses 1 to 4. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So clearly what's going on here in the first four verses is something to do with David. And David, after all, is a man who was renowned in biblical history. He was called a man after God's own heart. He really is the figurehead of the glory days of Israel. While Solomon, his son, had more wealth and more power, David was the one who united the people of Israel and is really viewed as the the father of the monarch that we know as Israel. While Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, David is seen as the father of the nation of Israel. So he, he brought the nation together in heart and soul. And additionally, David had a very special relationship with God. God had made a covenant with him. You see, David wanted to build God a temple. He wanted to build God a house. He saw his own house. He saw that God was meeting in a tent and was like, man, I want to build God a temple. And so he had this idea. A prophet tells him, no, 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 you, you, you can't do that. God doesn't want you to do that. And instead, God makes a covenant with him in Second Samuel chapter 7. Listen to what it says. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love, notice that, 
will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So that's the promise. That's the covenant that's behind Psalm 89. That when Ethan reflects on God's covenantal promise to David, he uses words like steadfast love, like covenant. And, and the promise essentially was that there would come a day when the nation of Israel would be ruled by a descendant of David and his reign would be forever. And embedded in this covenant, in 2 Samuel 7, are words like build and establish, words like steadfast love, like we've already talked about. And so in verses 1 to 4, we're seeing these, these themes that are emerging, these parallels between the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89, and the parallels are intentional. The psalmist here is recounting the promise of God. He's intentionally rehearsing the beautiful things about what God has promised. Now at this point, I just want you to note this. We'll come back to this significant point here that the fact that Ethan is intentionally praising God. And you'll see why in a moment why this is so important. But just note that he begins with intentional praise. Now secondly, we move into this exalting in who God is. In verses 5 to 18, we see that the, the focus shifts, not just from intentional praise, but to a very intense focus as to who and what God is, what He is like. He moves from general to specific in terms of statements of adoration, which highlight different aspects of God's greatness, including His um, majesty, His might, and His morality. Verses 5 to 8 we see the psalmist here extol God's otherworldliness, that God deserves praise from the heavens in verse 5, from the angels, they're called holy ones in verse 5, from the skies in verse 6, from the heavenly beings in verse 6. He's called in verse 7 as awesome above all who are around him. And verse 8 says that there is no one greater than God and no one is more faithful. So he just extols and exalts in who and what God is. Look at verse 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. In other words, he's just extolling, he's exalting in the majesty of God. And then he turns next to a focus on the exaltation of God's might. His might has, that has been seen in history. He talks about the sea which was the, the sea, the ocean, was the most formidable and unpredictable part of man's environment. Who can tame the sea? Nobody can. God can. That's what the psalmist says. Uh, all the nations before him are nothing in verse 10. Rahab, which is a euphemism for Egypt, is crushed like a carcass. God owns all of creation in verse 11. All of creation praises him. And verse 13 concludes that God is mighty. Look at verse 8. Listen to it. O God, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. 
You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, two mountains. Joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, high your right hand. Again, God's might, after talking about His majesty... And then, talking about his morality, beginning in verse 14. That righteousness, justice, and steadfast love are all a part of God's reign, according to verse 14. Blessing comes to those who are underneath God's reign, in verse 15. People benefit from his righteousness, in verse 16. And the moral perfection of God, specifically his holiness, is the empowering and protective covering for God's people. The idea is that God is superior to everything in his morality. Look at verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. Verse 17. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. So what's going on here? The psalmist is reminding his own heart of the, about the beauty of who and what God is. He is recounting the character of God. He is anchoring his soul into the reality, the deep reality of what God is all about. He thinks back on history. He thinks back about what he knows to be true about God. And he reflects this beautiful, these beautiful truths about what God is like. He points his heart to God. This is one of the major reasons why we love the Psalms so much. This is why we go to the Psalms when we're in pain. Because they help to stoke the fires of our hearts to get them off of our circumstances and onto God-centered adoration, which means that if you find yourself emotionally down or struggling, just trying to understand what's going on in your life, my guess is you're going to find great comfort in the Psalms because what they do is they bring us back to who and what God is. They, They lift us. They lift us beyond our circumstances and our limited view of life, and they... Help us to behold the beauty of God. And that's what's happening here in Psalm 89. So there is a clear sense, not only of intentional praise and also of exulting in who God is, but now there is this sense of rehearsing the promises of God in verses 19 to 37. So he he highlighted this in the beginning, verses 1 to 4, talked about the greatness of God, in the next verses, uh, verses uh, 5 to 18, and now from 19 to 37, he's actually going to zero in specifically on the promises of God as it relates to the Davidic covenant. I mean, this is, this is really amazing. So this covenant that was hinted at in the first few verses is now brought out front and center, and the psalmist from multiple different angles identifies the beautiful promises that God had given to David and to his people. This Davidic covenant is a really, really important aspect of Israel's identity. And in a moment, you'll understand why it's so remarkable that he's talking about it this way. For the sake of time, and also because the passage is just so clear, it stands on its own, I just want to read it. And as I do, 
Just listen for the personal nature of this covenant. Listen to how much hope is embedded in what it says and how rich, how pregnant it is with affection and compassion and promise. This is a big-time promise from God to His people. Verse 19. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love, I will keep him, I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the sky. I mean, you read the psalm, and if, if you're in David's kingdom, you're like, woohoo, man, God's on our side. I mean, look at this. Forever, like the moon and the sun, God's not going to abandon us. He's going he's to exhort your horn, David. He's, he's, you're going to have a descendant that's going to sit on this throne forever. The message is sure and hopeful. It's triumphant. It's about the character of God. It's about rejoicing in His promises. And if you stopped where I think this psalm originally did in verse 37, that in and of itself would be a a very hopeful, wonderful, encouraging psalm, wouldn't it? I mean, it ends with just a festal shout. Go, God, go, God, go, God. I mean, it's just awesome. But it doesn't stop there. In fact, right at the top of the mountain, this psalm takes a hard I mean, a hard left turn. It's almost like you can hear the screech of the wheels. It's coming around the corner. You're flying. Everything's going great. And all of a sudden there is a fast left-hand turn. And we hear it in verse 38 where the covenant seems to be eclipsed. Where the psalmist says, But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You, you just got to see this. The, the, the dynamic here. After talking about intentionally praising God, extolling His majesty and His might and His power, rehearsing the Davidic covenant, the, the, the summit, God, you're always going to be with us. Then verse 38, bam! But now, O oh Lord, you have cast off. Now, O oh Lord, you have rejected. You are full of wrath. And what comes in verses 38 to 45 is a section filled with an incredible amount of pain, confusion, and devastation. Now, we, we don't know 100% where this psalm fits in biblical history, but 
It seems, and I think it's fairly safe to say, that it is reflecting on the time that we talked about last week where the nation of Israel was taken captive and defeated by the nation of Babylon. The king at the time when that happened was Zedekiah. He was in the line of David, the third son of the reformer king, a good king named Josiah. And what happened was the Babylonians came and they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem for 18 months. That was part of a typical military strategy. You encircle the city, you cut off the water if you can, you cut off the food, and you starve people into submission. I mean, no sense fighting if you can just beat them by camping out, right? So you hang out around the city for 18 months, starve them out, and then most people surrendered. In Israel's case, they didn't. Their forces were weakened. Horrible things happened inside of the city. I mean, just disgusting things. You can imagine what happens when people run out of food for 18 months. The desperation, the desecration of things that happened. Eventually, Jerusalem was attacked beyond the siege. They were conquered. They were plundered. Zedekiah fled the city. Some troops captured him. They took him to an outpost outside of the city of Jerusalem, brought his children to him, and killed all of his kids in front of him. And then put out his eyes. So that was the last thing he saw. Led him in chains. And brought him to the city of Babylon. And there he remained a prisoner for the rest of his life. A force then returned to Jerusalem. And this gleaming city of God now was completely razed. The walls were broken down. The temple was completely destroyed. Everything was burned. So that according to Jeremiah 52, all that was left were some peasants and some fields. And that was it. So just, if if we've got this right, your king is a blind captive... The great city of God is plundered and decimated. The temple is completely demolished. You're you're in, if you're in this season, you're in the dark side of God's will. The promises of God that sounded so precious in verses 1 to 37, that it sounded so personal, are now a long way off. So verses 38 to 45 are filled with an enormous amount of pain. But what I want you to notice, when you look at it in your Bible, just take a bird's eye view and notice how many times the word you appears. Thirteen times in the text where Ethan or someone writing with his tone and his heart reflects not only on the reality of the challenge in front of them, but the fact that God is directly a part of the issue that's involved. God, you made all these promises, and now look what has happened. Look at all the ways that, 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 that the word you, and the number of things, the number of uh, times that this word shows up, you. Verse 39, you have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruin. All who go by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. And you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and have cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. I mean, it was just a few verses ago he was talking about, you're going to make this kingdom reign forever, and now, God, you have defiled the very crown. This is the hard part of being about 
being in the dark side of God's will. You know God is faithful. You know He keeps His promises. You know He's always good. But there are times when the twin realities of God's promises and life's pain do not intersect well. It feels as if God has rejected His people. It feels as if He has violated His steadfast love. Strong, there are strong words here. Words like cast off, rejected, full of wrath, renounced the covenant, defiled the crown. In English, those sound so definitive. In Hebrew, they, they, they have less of a permanent sense to them. Thus, the NIV and NRSV renders it as, instead of rejected the covenant, they render it as spurned your covenant. So friends, just, just notice where we, we are left here. We're left with a situation that's difficult to stomach. Because on the one hand, God is majestic and He is steadfast in His love. Wouldn't you agree with that? He's steadfast in His love. But on the other hand, there are moments when it seriously, it seriously feels as if God has broken His promise. There are moments when we experience this very difficult tension when you're in the dark side of God's will. Have you ever been there? I have. I'm talking about this not in a theoretical sense. I, I know this. I know this in a personal way. Our family has experienced this. I, I don't believe that I've ever shared this story publicly, but um, I asked my wife's permission. She said it was fine. It just fits so well. And look, we're family, and I think it's okay to be honest about some of the challenging moments in your life. After the stillbirth of our daughter. In 2004, there was a season from 2004 to 2007-ish that was some of the darkest of our entire lives. During that season, one of our greatest fears was that this stillbirth would be the last child that we would ever have. That was like the doomsday scenario. We just prayed and prayed and prayed, God, we we, we just please, just one more baby, just please. And in God's hard providence we had multiple miscarriages during that season and every time that happened it was just more pain and more pain finally we found out that we had a pregnancy and it looked like it was good and healthy the numbers were going up like they're supposed to be and we were thrilled we thought finally the lord has answered our prayer and our obgyn said come on in let's do an ultrasound and we'll see this little one and so we went in Everything looked great. We went in and we were in the exact same room. The exact same room that we had confirmed the death of our daughter just a year earlier. The exact same little room, exact same little ultrasound machine. And I will never forget the feeling when that doctor put that ultrasound wand on my wife's tummy and the exact same look on his face came that we had seen just a year earlier. And my wife said, what? And he said, I... I can't believe this. I don't know how to tell you this, but he said, what you have is what's medically called a a blighted ovum. What that means in layman's term is that you've got a a house for a baby. So your numbers are going up right now, but there's there's no baby in there. And I was like, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, look. And sure enough, there's a, little sack and there's no baby there i remember going out to the car and sitting in there in that car with my wife in that parking lot and 
after all that we had been through, we had a conversation that went something like this. You know, I know God is not mean, but man, does it feel like it today. And I'll never forget sitting alone in an operating room waiting area as my wife was taken away to deal with this blighted ovum, and I'm thinking, I know your promises are true, but it does not feel like it at all. And it was one of the loneliest, darkest moments of my life. I'm on the edge, you understand, of unbelief. I'm a, I'm a preacher of the gospel, right? And I'm on the edge. The promises of God in that moment felt very, very far away. The, the, the covenant of God felt eclipsed. So, so what do you do when that comes? Well, look what the psalmist does in verse 46. He, he goes back, and he, he goes back to all that he's got. Circumstances might not change. The, the dynamics that are involved might never be undone. You can't undo the past. So what does he do? How do you learn to live in the dark side of God's will? You know what you do? You go back to God, and you go back to His promises. You return, you rehearse, and you plead with God to remember His promises. Your appeal is not to remind God about His promises. Your appeal is to remind you about the promises of God. Notice how prevalent the crying out to the Lord is here and how it is connected to His appeal to remember Verse 46, how long, O Lord? I've said that. Anybody in pain who's really suffering, who's on the edge, really, of unbelief, says that. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is for what vanity you have created, all the children of man. Verse 48, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, Lord, how your servants are mocked, how I bear in my heart the insults of many nations with which my enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Don't you hear the pain the appeal here from the psalmist is based upon his understanding of who god is so he anchors himself notice this not to a change of circumstances he anchors himself to the only sure thing that you have in the midst of a dark side of god's will moment you anchor yourself to the very character of god He appeals to God's compassion, verse 47, his historical acts in verse 48, his sense of justice in verse 50, his previous promises in verse 51. So the hope of the psalmist and your hope in the midst of dark side of God's will moments is not why and not when, your hope is who. And then notice where he ends. This is just incredible. After all we have heard, after the wrestling, after the great uh, 1 to 37 of God's promises and the depths of sorrow in verses 38 to 51, here comes verse 52. In the midst of the pitch darkness and the cold unreality of the orbit of the dark side of God's will comes this beautiful cry, Blessed be the Lord forever and ever 
amen and amen. Do you know what he does? He chooses to bless. He chooses to bless. That's right. So in the midst of hardship and difficulty on one hand, and the promises of God that he can't reconcile, he lives in this world where these two things don't always mesh. And in the midst of that, he still chooses to say, Blessed be the Lord forever and ever. Do you know how much faith it takes to say that? It's the echo of Job 121, where Job says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And then he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. This is, this is the hope of Psalm 89, that in the midst of great confusion, in the midst of great wrestling with God's will, you can still choose to bless the Lord. What brings you back from the brink of unbelief? It is saying, I'm going to bless you even on the hardest day of my life. I choose to bless you. So, what lessons can we derive from this psalm? What little markers can I maybe give you in light of this and just pastorally? Here's, here's a few things. The first, friends, when you're on the dark side of God's will, don't trust your feelings. You need to get this into your head that just because you feel something doesn't mean it's true. Wish I could get that into my soul more often. Some of the dumbest things in life I've ever said or done have become because I have, have come because I believed that what I feel is gospel truth. No, that's not right. Just because I feel something doesn't mean it's true. When, when, there are moments in your life when you will ask, God, what are you doing? Questions like, where are you right now? Questions like, how long, O oh Lord? And, and these questions, when they are asked in honest pain, not in sinful anger. I don't, I don't think you should ever be angry with God. But honest questions like these, listen to me, are normal and they're, they're part of the content of the Bible. Sometimes people have a misguided notion that Christianity means you never really struggle, you never really grieve, you don't lament, you don't ever really get down. Well, then why is Psalm 89 in the Bible? I mean, the reality is there are hard things that happen, and when hard things come, it is really, really, really hard. And things that go on for years or things that happen in your past, and you can't reconcile them. And sometimes when you think about them, it gets really difficult. So being spiritual doesn't mean that you never struggle. Being spiritual doesn't mean that you never feel abandoned. It means, rather, that in the midst of the struggle, you see the need to clearly distinguish between what you feel very deeply and what is true biblically you can feel abandoned without actually being abandoned don't trust your feelings number two psalm 89 encourages us to cling to god's promises so listen the essence of what it means to be a christian what it means to be a follower of jesus is that you have believed god's promises 
You, you believe what the Word of God says. The Bible tells us, if you don't know what it means to be a Christian, the Bible tells us this, that we are sinners. It tells us that God is holy. It tells us that God's justice, because of His holiness, requires a payment for our sinfulness. That's what the Bible says. And it says that Jesus took the penalty for sin for those who receive Him as their Lord and Savior. That God takes their sin and gives it to Jesus and takes Jesus' righteousness and gives it to God's children who have received Christ. All of that is based upon a promise. You believed it. That's how you became a follower of Jesus. So faith is what you did in conversion. You believe that in faith. The problem is, is that many people think that they don't necessarily have to have faith beyond that initial conversion. Faith is what you do every single day of your life. Faith is what you do, especially in the midst of the dark side of God's will. You take God at His word and you believe His promises. You cling to them. You sing them. You pray them. You cherish them. You rehearse them. And you do this every single day until the dawn comes. It's not just that you do it once. But it's every day you get up and say, God, today's another day and it's going to be really hard, but I'm going to choose to believe your promises. I'm going to cling to you and your word. And then you do that all day long. You consume all the grace that he's given you. You go to bed and you say, Lord, tomorrow I'm waking up. I'm going to try and cling to your promises again. You go to bed, you wake up, and the next morning you do it. And the next day you do it. And the next day you do it. And you keep doing that all throughout your life until Jesus comes. That's how you make it through difficult moments. The freedom doesn't come through circumstances changing. It may never change, but the freedom comes in the midst of hard and difficult providences, things that God has allowed or caused to be a part of your life. You can still cling to the promises of God by faith every single day. You cling to His promises. Third, when you're doing this, you ask God for His help. And I don't mean here primarily that you're asking him to change or to deal with the circumstances. You, certainly you can pray about that. That's, that's, that's legitimate and pray that way. But what I mean here is I mean you pray that God would help you to keep believing. That you pray, God, keep me clinging to your promises. It's what I'm praying in that car, in that parking lot. God, keep me believing. Keep me believing. Keep me cherishing your promises. It's the prayer of Psalm 86.11 where the psalmist says, Unite my heart to fear your name. I feel the, the bifurcation of my soul. I feel unbelief surfacing. So unite my heart to fear your name. It is pleading for, with God for heaven-sent perseverance, a commitment to say, God, help me to keep trusting the one who keeps me trusting. The beautiful thing is, is the trust thing is not just you. It is that God keeps you trusting. And praying and asking Him to help you is a part of the persevering process. So you ask Him for help. Fourth, it is that in the midst of these circumstances, you choose to bless. That's what some of you need to do today for the first time, or maybe a renewed commitment to choose to bless, a, a daily choice, a daily faith-birthed, promise-believing decision. A choice to bless the Lord even when things are hard. 
Job's wife crumbled under the weight of pain. She told him, curse God and die. And Job's response was, shall we receive good from God and not receive bad things? You know what he's saying? Are we in this God thing just because it's for our benefit? Are we just in this God thing because of good things that happen? Is that just why we're here? And that sounds like a lot of evangelical believers. They want Jesus because they want heaven. The reality is Jesus and heaven and suffering and hardship, they all go together. And the question is, do you want God just because of all the blessings? Or do you want God even if it requires hardship and pain? And choosing to bless means that, God, I'm in this because of you, not because of your benefits. I'm in this because of your majesty, not because of the, the, the things that you give me. I am here because I'm in love with you, not just your gifts. Job made his pain a platform for worship. And that's what, God helping you, you can do today too. And say, God, I don't understand why. I don't know where your steadfast love is, but I will choose to bless because you are more to me than just somebody who gives me good things. You are my God. And you know what I need. And then finally, the Bible calls us to consider Jesus. So this is an add-in, Psalm 89 but one from a New Testament perspective, we, we can't miss because, listen, friends, we know the final story to Psalm 89. We know that Babylonian captivity happened, but we also know that God did keep his promise to David and that there is and that there, present, that there presently is and there forever will be a descendant of David who reigns as king of kings and lord of lords. Now, his path to this reign was not what anyone would have expected, and nor was it something that made sense. Just ask the disciples the day after the crucifixion. Can you imagine? I mean, they're on the dark side of God's will. What in the world is this all about? Then the resurrection happens. Like, yeah! And then he goes away. Like, what? Right? I mean, so it's just like, what? And, and he kind of constantly keeps us on a, a little bit of an off-footing, lest we can become overly self-confident in ourselves and re- re- relinquish our understanding of our need for Him. And yet we know in Jesus, God fulfilled all of His promises. And Jesus today is seated on that very throne, whereby He He gives physical and eternal evidence that God always keeps His Word. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says, Consider Him so that you do not grow weary or faint-hearted. So if you're on the dark side of God's will today and you are weary and faint-hearted, I would just tell you, consider Jesus. Consider everything that God did through Jesus. And just so you know, the dark side of God's will does not mean that He's not keeping His promises. It just means that you don't see all of the ways that this thing is going to eventually dawn to bring about God's eternal purposes and His means. So when you see... The dark side of God's will through this lens, friends, it changes everything. It does, frankly, something beautiful, something that only God could do. It makes, listen to me, it makes the dark side moments one of the greatest and most intimate times with God that you will ever have. That's what's so crazy. Is in the midst of the pain in the midst of your wrestling with unbelief, 
God becomes so crystal clear. His love and compassion for you becomes so clear while you're also hurting like you've never hurt before. And you discover that while it is really, really dark, that God is still there. He has not broken His promise. You're just on the dark side of His will. And eventually, the dawn will come. Let's pray together. Father, I pray today for my brothers and sisters who are walking this very moment through the dark side of your will, wrestling with your purposes and your plans, and that I pray today that there might be within them an understanding to say, Lord, I'm going to choose today to bless. And I pray that your word and what they've heard today would be a path forward in how they might be able to think and hope that could come not from a change of circumstances, but hope that comes from clinging to your promises, trusting the one who keeps us trusting, and considering Jesus all the way to the finish line. College Park, let me just stop there for a moment. And before we just transition and you leave, there, there are some of you I know who need to fill in the blank of this prayer. Lord, today I'm choosing to bless you for. And you know what you need to put in that blank. And as we reflect on what God has said today, there's some of you, you need to pray that prayer. You've prayed it before, but you need to pray it again today. For some of you, it's the first time you need to pray that. God, I'm choosing to bless you for. And this release is not a once for all, I'm never going to wrestle with this, but it's to say on this Lord's Day, I am choosing to fight for belief. And I choose to bless you for. Isn't it time you made the turn from the promises of God and the wrestling just to be able to rest? Some of you need to confess, Lord, I've been angry with you. I've said horrible things to you about fairness and And some of you today may need to deal with the very essence of your soul, what it means to even have Jesus as your Savior. Your pain may be the pathway that God leads you to faith in Christ. If there's a need that we can help you with or pray any of, in any category, our folks are here this morning to help you up here at the front, just to pray over you that God would help you to keep trusting the one who keeps you trusting. So Lord Jesus, thank you that this psalm speaks so clearly to the tension that we live in all the time. And I pray that you'd help us to keep clinging to your promises even when your will becomes dark, and hard, and uncertain. Help us to keep trusting you. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Couch Park, I love you. Thanks for coming today. God bless you.